Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. I'm Bill Glasgow, Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. And welcome to our special briefing, uh, which we are putting on in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Uh, Susan Walker, uh, the co-director and my co-host will be joining us later in the program. And today, the, the subject at hand is the COVID-19 pandemic fiscal shock and cities across America. We're seeing accelerating numbers on state deficits and city deficits, a lot of talk of, uh, of layoffs, furloughs, and whatnot. Cities uh, really are, are at the front line of, uh, of the reaction to, to COVID. That's where, uh, that's where the concentration of cases are, and the mayors are looking to their counties, their governors, and the White House for uh, for assistance, technical guidance, and the, the whole uh, the whole nine yards. We have a terrific uh, panel for you today. Shirley Clark Franklin, former mayor of Atlanta, who helped steer uh, Atlanta through one of its worst fiscal crises ever. Uh, she's a director of the Volcker Alliance and also honoree honoree from Penn Ayor is with us. Mike Pagano, who's Dean of the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs at University of Illinois, Chicago. Mike also heads the Government Finance Research Center. Mike wrote a very interesting blog for Brookings, which we are posting to the Volcker Alliance website. It's volkeralliance.org. Uh, and UI, UI Chicago is also a key member of the Volcker Alliance State Budget Research Network. My friend and colleague, Dick Ravitch, who Mayor de Blasio the other day called a legend, he's joining us. Dick is a former New York State Lieutenant Governor lived through and helped guide New York through its brush with bankruptcy in the 1970s. And he has been recently named to be a member of the New York City Fair Recovery Task Force. Dick is also director of the Volcker Alliance. And uh, Susan, of course, I mentioned. We're gonna kick off uh, with Mayor Franklin. Shirley, as I mentioned, guided Atlanta through a terrible period. Atlanta is uh, Atlanta is back in the soup again, or, or certainly will be, has a very, very high incidence of coronavirus cases, especially among its African-American population. And I'm wondering, Shirley, tell me what you learned about steering a big city through a fiscal crisis, and what, what kind of advice do you have for, for Mayor Bottoms and the city council now? Thanks for having me. Good morning to everyone. I will say that when I joined city government, I got a piece of advice from the uh, the sitting governor of the of the state, uh, George Busby at the time. He said, no matter what they tell you, the budget that they've left says, do your own budget, because that will guide everything you do. And taking that advice, we dug deep into the budget and found that there was uh, an $80 million shortfall almost a 20% shortfall predicted. Uh, and what I learned is the first and most important thing for us to do was to communicate straightforward with transparency with the public and the governing authority of, of the city council. Uh, because without the trust of the council and the public, it would have been nearly impossible to turn around city finances, even in the two to three years that it took us. Um, the second thing I learned is that there's no quick fix, uh, that you have to find long-term solutions. And obviously, you need to dig deep and determine the true nature and the scope of the problem. And then to evaluate the key, the key options. In our case, it resulted in layoffs, a layoff of a 1,000 employees. Uh, and uh, we worked really hard to get them replaced or place into vacancies in city government and other positions around the city, but there were a thousand lay uh, layoffs in our general fund and our property tax increase of about 42%. And all of that had to be accomplished within the six weeks that was allowed under the state constitution for my administration to, um, 
operate uh, under a balanced budget. We are one of those uh, states where the state does not fund general operating of the city uh, to any great extent. Maybe uh, two, three, four percent uh, of our budget comes from the state. So we have to do it on our own. And for us, it included property taxes. It took us about four years to right-size government operations and the budget after that. And then uh, two years later, we faced the Great Recession, and we were back at it again. And we started again with being transparent and straightforward, getting the best advice we could from inside and outside of government uh, on the nature and the scope of the problem. Not easy to solve. It seems that we are in this cycle now, uh, and I look forward to um, hearing the other conversations. Thank you, Shirley. We're going to cycle back in the question period. Uh, we have a lot of audience questions that were submitted in advance. Certainly, we're going to want to talk about taxes and whether you can raise taxes in this kind of environment where the government has, has literally shut the economy down. Uh, we're going to turn now to, to Mike Pagano, who is a, a long, long-term friend and colleague. And Mike, uh, Mike has done a lot of interesting work lately on which cities are the most vulnerable in the short term, medium term, and long term. It's in a Brookings, uh, Brookings blog piece that he and Christy McFarland of the National League of Cities did, uh, which will be posted on the Volcker Alliance website, volkeralliance.org. Tell me, Mike, you, you went through uh, a lot of cities, especially in the heartland. Uh, you didn't include New York and Washington, but I know that you've, you've, you've looked at those too. What cities are the most vulnerable, vulnerable right now, and why? You seem to argue that it's a, it's a, it's a combination of the, of their, the composition of their workforce and what their tax structure is. So tell us about that, and tell us how how cities may may negotiate this minefield. Sure, and uh, thanks, Bill, for inviting me. I, I, let me start a little bit before what they what they might do, and talk a little bit about what the report attempted to do. Uh, Brookings produced a report that identified cities that were likely to be hit the hardest by the economic downturn, and they they identified those cities as those that had more than the national average of employment in mining and transportation and employment services and travel arrangements and in leisure and hospitality. And so what we know is that as, as soon as the shutdown shock hit in these employment sectors, we knew that the city's revenues we're not in all cases directly linked to that immediate change in the economy. So for example, cities that are highly reliant on the sales tax would certainly stop collecting sales tax receipts when people stop buying. And in other words, the responsiveness of the sales tax collection is quick. A, a sharp drop in the economy does not, however, suddenly change the amount of taxes collected on real estate. So property tax payments typically reflect the value of property from the previous year, or maybe even longer back. So when the, COVID-19 shock threw many people out of jobs and it shuttered businesses, the value of property, even if it declined immediately, and I know the real estate uh, market right now has is, is been hit pretty hard, but the, the tax receipts, the city's coffers, aren't going to feel that for probably another year. So what we did, uh, what, what Christy and I did, was we cross-referenced, this wasn't all metro areas, we had some uh, 130 or so, but we cross-referenced the metro areas that Brookings identified as being the hardest hit with our data on the general funds of municipalities and to see what their reliance on the property and sales and income tax taxes were. So those that were relatively reliant on the sales and income tax and relatively reliant on the hardest hit employment sectors that Brookings identified were marked as those that would most likely feel the fiscal impact immediately. All cities are going to effectively be hit by this. Uh, their treasuries are going to be hit by this over time. But those that will hit immediately are those that, in which the general tax receipts plummet or uh, right right away, or and when uh, in unemployment escalates very rapidly because they're not collecting the wage tax. So cities like Columbus, Ohio, has 75% of its general fund revenue derived from the income tax. Uh, Oklahoma City. 54% of its general fund revenue derived from the sales tax. They're, they're going to feel the effect of, of the, the downturn, the, the, the shutdown of the economy immediately. They are, they are already feeling it. Uh, places like Boston that doesn't levy a sales or income tax or Orlando or Las Vegas, you know, uh, uh, destination places for the entertainment uh, sector, uh, they're going to be hit 
their treasuries are going to be hit, but not because of a decline in the major general tax, because they rely on the on the property tax, not on the income or sales tax. So they'll be eventually in uh, feeling the effect of a general tax reduction in, in the property um, because property values are declining. But uh, what they will be uh, not collecting as much as those fees and charges and other minor taxes that municipalities uh, impose. So for the cities that are uh, for what we were trying to demonstrate is that for cities that are highly dependent on the sales and income tax and are also defined by the, the Brookings report as the hardest hit, they, they are going to be feeling the effect of the uh, COVID-19 downturn uh, Im immediately. Those that have uh, more reliance on the property tax than the sales or income tax, they eventually will feel the effect of the downturn, but not immediately. So that that's the uh, the purpose of trying to present this report, which, as I said, was not comprehensive of all municipalities. We only had about 130 or so. Uh, New York and Washington were not included in that, but both of them rely uh, quite heavily on these uh, sales or income taxes. Washington, D.C., for example, collects about 48% of its general fund revenue comes from the uh, sales and income taxes. New York's is about 33% or a third. So both of those cities, are their revenue structures are vulnerable to a rapid decline in retail sales and in employment. Thank you, Mike. So I, I, the, uh, uh, we're going to we're going to cycle back uh, to to New York for sure in Dick's segment. But this is this is an interesting interesting exercise that city treasurers and CFOs probably need to go right right through uh, right now it, when they're modeling their revenue for the coming coming couple of years if they haven't done it already. Mary Murphy at Pew. Pew's got a big footprint in, in Philadelphia, where Penn IUR is, is located. But Pew does a lot of state research and research on the relationship between states and cities. Uh, we have seen, even during the boom years, uh, states balancing their budget in part by pushing, uh, pushing costs down onto counties and cities. What is the latest view from, uh, from, from Pew and your research team, Mary? Thanks, Bill, and, and thanks for inviting me to participate today. I think those are, are really important questions, and I want to start by just setting some context for where we were even heading into this crisis. So there was certainly wide variation across the U.S. in terms of how much of a role, the type of role that states play when it comes to monitoring municipal finances, including actively looking for signs of fiscal distress, offering both financial and technical assistance to their local governments, and then intervening or playing some kind of formal oversight role in the event of a budget crisis. So we see some states that take a highly proactive role with their local governments, including having legal structures in place that permit formal state oversight or intervention. Some examples of states that um, kind of exist at that end of the spectrum include Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, New Jersey, North Carolina, Actually, already in Pennsylvania, we've seen Governor Wolf issue a declaration of fiscal emergency for the city of Chester, which was a community struggling to respond to some of the fiscal pressures of the pandemic. The intent of, of declaring the emergency is to, to try to move that city rapidly into the state oversight program that exists in Pennsylvania for distressed municipalities. So we're already seeing examples of programs in, in Pennsylvania sort of being called into play in the situation. On the other end of the spectrum, we have states like, for example, California that have historically taken a much more hands-off approach even when cities fall into a fiscal crisis. And we saw examples of this in San Bernardino, Stockton, Vallejo, and the aftermath of the Great Recession. So even when communities are declaring bankruptcy, California taking a very kind of hands-off approach vis-a-vis -vis their local governments. So we're starting this situation with a range of frameworks and approaches for how states respond to local governments in crisis. These are not uniform structures from place to place. What is common across the U.S. is, of course, that states are going to have to grapple with their own budget problems. As you have been discussing on this webinar series, the estimated revenue losses at the state level coupled with spending pressures that were not planned for are, are just staggering, and we're seeing those, those estimates coming in now. A Moody's analysis from just last week noted that state revenue is not likely to return to FY19 levels by fiscal 24. So that's that's a five-year time horizon where we're not likely to get back to where we were absent revenue raising measures. So that that's a, a stark hole to be to be staring at at the state level. 
We don't yet know the full tally on state and local deficits, and of course, we also don't know the all of the tools available. The, the role of the federal government is certainly still unfolding, um, particularly in relation to state and local governments. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to that point later in the program. So um, to, to come to the, the question you were posing, it is, it is a strength, certainly, of the state sector that they can shift costs downstream. But what is a, a strong point for states is a challenge for their local governments, for their downstream entities. And in the Great Recession, we did see reductions in state aid to local governments, reductions in K-12, reductions in higher ed, measures that, that states had to take in order to balance their own budgets. And I think one really important note here is that in many cases, those reductions in state aid that happened in the last recession weren't ever fully restored back to pre-recession levels. And the most recent census data that was just released last month showed that in inflation-adjusted terms, state aid to local governments in 2017 was still lower in 22 states, so almost half the states, than it was in 2008 heading into the recession. So in some places, you have local governments who have already been managing this fiscal pressure of reduced state aid before we even got to the, the current pandemic situation. And certainly across the board, there will be uncertainty looking into the next fiscal year about state aid levels. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Moody's report, Mary. Uh, that's a, it's a scary number, as is the, uh, the CBVP report came out yesterday, analyzing some Congressional Budget Office and Goldman Sachs numbers and forecasting state budget shortfalls alone at $650 billion over three years, uh, kind of largely front loaded in the in the 21 numbers it's a scary scenario for cities as you as you point out that especially those that depend on on states for substantial amounts of aid one interesting thing about california is that the state is hands off with cities by practice and by statute many cities are called charter cities and actually have more more statutory powers than the states than the state does but school boards uh, school districts are very much in the state's purview uh, because the state recycles income tax money back to schools. And so there the state may be very interventionist. Uh, when we talk about cities, sometimes we ignore the role of school districts because they are very often legally separate. That's not the case in, in New York. And my friend and guest, Dick Ravitch, Dick knows New York City intimately uh, as, as a builder, as a player in New York City and state affairs. Dick was there when New York City was nine minutes, I believe, away from bankruptcy in 1975. Uh, so he's he's seen it. New York has control of the schools by virtue of uh, legislative approval. So it's it's a big, big budget and a big mess. And Dick, tell me, how is how is New York going to going to get out of this? How uh, how deep is New York's trouble? And what's the federal role need, need to be? The feds bailed out New York City once and bailed out uh, Washington, D.C. once. Do you expect to see increased federal aid to, to the nation's biggest city? Let me say it very bluntly. New York City can only survive in with massive federal aid. And that doesn't mean just this very creative program of loans that the Federal Reserve Board has initiated. That helps in the short-term cash flow problem, but it creates enormous liabilities that are unlikely to be met without a, a very significant increase in tax revenues far greater than what is possibly achievable, certainly during this period of the pandemic. What people forget is that in 1975, banks having lent the city of New York six and a half billion dollars, which was used to cover operating deficits of the city's budget, they finally realized that they weren't going to get paid back. And they told the governor that they would no longer lend any money. And the city came within a very, very short term of filing bankruptcy and defaulting on its debt. So using borrowed money without a rational scheme for paying it back in an economy that is dramatically weakened, 
and that is dependent on the level of recovery from the pandemic that at the moment nobody is actually predicting. So you take a simple fact that three million people ride the subway or used to ride the subway every day to and from their place of employment. That provided the revenue that paid for most of the operating expenses of the largest public transportation system in the United States. Nobody's writing the system now. And even though they will open it up for business, I, I wouldn't let my kids get into a crowded bus or subway car at this point for anything in the world, even with masks on. So I think that the density of New York makes compounds uh, the problem. So in my opinion, the only solution that can work is a massive amount of federal aid. In order for that to be politically feasible, we have to stop this nonsense about bankruptcy, which, by the way, Mitch McConnell doesn't understand the Constitution of the United States because cities and states can't file bankruptcy because of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. So Mitch McConnell ought to go to law school before he starts recommending solutions. But I, I, I don't know any other way. I think that the, the state of New York has already cut its spending by $10 billion, and it was underspending for Medicaid, uh, of which the city of New York's hospital system and its private hospitals are the biggest recipients of Medicaid funds. They, they, the state had already cut that significantly and unwisely prior to the pandemic. So I think that whereas New York is a precedent because of the size of its budget and its dependency on, on the state for a significant percentage of its operating funds, right now there is very little in the way of support other than Nancy Pelosi for the kind of aid that will be necessary in order to enable New York City to get back on a path of stability and growth. That That's a very daunting scenario. And as we get into the the question and answers, uh, I think we we want to come back and look at the role of this of this new task force that uh, that you're on, Dick. Susan Walker has uh, joined us. Welcome, Susan. Ten IUR is is a leader in urban development uh, issues. As I mentioned before, Shirley Franklin was was one of their uh, honorees a couple years ago. You're in Philadelphia, right? Right in Center City. Philadelphia itself has been under state oversight for decades. Tell us about the view from from inside inside Penn and inside the, the city, and then let's let's segue into uh, into questions and answers for the next half hour because uh, we certainly have plenty. I want to remind everybody that you can listen to the archive version of this and our past special briefings on the Volcker Alliance website, as well as on the Penn IUR website, easy to, to Google them both. Uh, we also have documents uh, posted online and um, all kinds of uh, all kinds of wonderful reports on state and local finance. So Susan, tell us about the view from Philly and then and then let's let's go right into Q&A. Okay, so uh, Dick Ravage's comments, uh, as usual, really thoughtful and also, uh, let's note how sobering they are. I just got off of a real estate call, and there is no real estate sector that, um, other than logistics, of course, that uh, is looking good. Uh, real estate obviously plays right into the property taxes. So uh, this is not a short-run illiquidity crunch for state and local. It's going to get worse, and therefore, the overall economy is now what, what's absolutely the overall economy is in the crosshairs and what's the arrow uh, that's aimed is actually state and local because we've had major declines, obviously, in employment that we're seeing, uh, 30 million. It's a, moving now to numbers that are rates that are 
Great Depression rates, and we'll get we'll we'll see that. But what we haven't seen yet is the state and local uh, declines in employment, and that will be a second leg, which will bring the economy to its knees if we allow that to happen. So I see it in Philadelphia, uh, where. Uh, the mayor has just announced uh, that it will start uh, across the board cuts. Uh, it hasn't been precise yet, but it's that in planning, 20% cuts. Uh, so this is uh, obviously a problem for Philadelphia, which is uh, very shaky to begin with, particularly the school system. But it's just emblematic of the fragile state of uh, cities and states across across the U.S. And I want to comment on a second point of fragility, which will add to the uh, current down pressures in the overall economy, which are in addition follow-ons to the Great Repression stay-at-home coma that we're, we've all been placed in. And that is what happens in the fall if we cannot go back to the normal fall moment of return, which is a plus for the overall economy, which is back to school. And we here at Penn uh, are talking about uh, not opening up uh, completely, but doing continuation of online, as many universities across the country are doing. There is quite a bit of university debt around around the United States that is that is issued through through state agencies as well as direct, and that this is this is something to to watch for. Let me go right to uh, some of the questions, and then we can we can deal with some other points about Philly and, and cities later. We got a number of questions, and I'll I'll summarize them both. One of them came from from uh, my friend Jerry Sturmer, who is a former Illinois State Budget Director and and numerous other state uh, high state offices. He's asking the question that a lot of people are asking: uh, How you know even with coronavirus aid from Washington, how are cities going to pay for police, fire, public health, all the basic services, and I might add also teachers. Uh, teachers make up about a third of the state and local workforce, according to the census. So this is this is a question for, this is a grab ball here, just uh, jump in. How, how are the cities going to avoid the, the kind of layoffs that Philadelphia and New York are, are suggesting are, are probably going to happen? So, so in Atlanta, this is Shirley. In Atlanta, we could not avoid uh, layoffs. What we had to do was manage the layoffs. And then come the Great Recession, we went to a 32-hour work week for police, fire, and everyone. And we reorganized our entire operations so that you were paid for 32 hours, you worked 32 hours, even though most of our services are 24-hour services. And it, it wasn't a pretty picture, but we had to manage to that even in 2008 and 2009. I closed City Hall on Friday. You could not do business at City Hall on Friday. We saved uh, energy costs. We reduced our carbon footprint. Crime went down. Fires went, fatalities went down. And actually, city workers um, were relatively satisfied that they did not lose their jobs. So we used furloughs in 08, we used layoffs in 02. Detroit was was in that position uh, in a way by default be, before it filed for bankruptcy and before uh, Kevin Orr came in as the as the last emergency manager, where uh, sort of de, de facto services simply fell apart. So it's not a pretty scenario. Was that Mike or or, or Dick speaking so, up? So I, I want if I could pick up on on Mayor Franklin's point. Was, uh, which is there are um, there are ways of managing a budget that prolongs the um, that, that addresses the issue immediately, but in a, in a very creative way by by managing the resources differently. Uh, Thirty-two hour work week is was a, I think a brilliant response that the um, that the mayor and the city had come up with. What makes this uh, different from the, something that we've experienced in the past is that. The Great Recession rolled in over over several months or even a year, whereas this has hit immediately. So uh, cities are, are having to respond immediately. One of the response mechanisms they have access to 
is their uh, their reserves or what they haven't spent from prior years, which at both the state and the city level are, at least until two months ago, were, were at the highest levels they've ever been. That's going to allow them to maintain service levels or not immediately ditch everything for probably, you know, two, three in, yeah, probably two or three months, and they're they're going to no longer have that uh, reserve or that that uh, uh, savings account to uh, to pick into. Then they're going to have to address some really important questions. So one of them is to continue to along the lines mayor identified as managing uh, diminishing resources. But the other is, and I think we're we're now in a position very much like the Great Depression, where local governments and states had to become much more creative in how they would. D designed revenue structures around their services. So until the 1930s, uh, cities didn't have access and didn't impose a sales tax. They were they were almost completely dependent on the property tax. They've diversified the revenue structures, or at least some of them have. And I think this is an opportunity where cities have to immediately address the pressing issue they have right before them now, which is they're going to lose an awful lot of money very quickly. But the second is they have to have on a second track, they have to be examining better revenue structures for the future. Well, I, I agree with Mike, but I want to add to that that the dollar volume that will be needed is far greater than has ever occurred before because of what is happening at the state level. And because in these intervening years, States have assumed massive obligations on health care and infrastructure. And uh, as I said earlier, solving the problem with debt to the extent that you could get creditworthy borrowing, it ain't going to be paid back in the future. So I again want to emphasize that the size of the problem is going to require a level of federal dollars that is undoubtedly inflationary and there is no local level of revenue that cover what is uh, could be a 600 billion dollar gap in state budgets collectively over this the next couple of years and let me say as well that some of our well-meaning politicians who advocate such things as rent forgiveness for tenants. Uh, if landlords don't get rent, they can't pay property taxes. And that's the largest revenue for every municipality uh, in the United States of America. Well, this gets me to, to two questions. This is a question that came from Matthew Sherman, and I apologize if you if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, at WNYC Public Radio in New York. And he's asking whether whether New York City would have been better off had the city budget not increased so much over previous years, uh, necessitating cuts today. That kind of sums up the question for a lot of cities that have uh, that have increased spending as the economy has boomed. Uh, and that's really directed at, at Dick because you're, you're, you're on the task force now. The mayor is to, has the first meeting of our task force tonight, and therefore I do not know what he wants this task force to do. But given its composition, they're all wonderful citizens, and but conspicuously absent are the major business leaders uh, from Wall Street who have clout politically in Washington. And none of those are on this task force. And therefore, if I'm right that our biggest challenge is getting federal dollars, uh, there's nobody on the task force who's going to be significantly uh, helpful in achieving that objective. I think that second of all, in fiscal crisis uh, that we have, there was in the case of Detroit, Puerto Rico, with which I'm familiar, in addition to New York, mechanisms that enforced budget reductions that were not necessarily something politicians who run for office wanted to espouse. 
but they were grateful. Uh, Ed Koch, when he was mayor, used to criticize the control board, a state agency which had to approve the city's budget. He used to criticize it on television every day. And when he was off camera, he'd say, thank God for the control board. We're missing that mechanism. But I, the mayor is well-intended, and uh, we'll find out what he wants this group to do. It's a good point, Dick. Uh, before I get to the, the role of the Federal Reserve, uh, we had a couple questions, and uh, Shirley and, and a few of us were talking about this before we went live. You know, we're, we've been talking really about the, the general fund, the operating budgets for, for cities, uh, school districts, but we haven't mentioned capital capital budgets. There's some talk in in Congress about a new infrastructure bill. There's some resistance uh, in, in the Senate among the leadership. That there's a lot of infrastructure in cities that's supported by special revenue, airport landing fees, um, hotel taxes, you, you, you name it. What's going to become of of, of the very necessary capital capital spending needs? We, we've estimated that the uh, that the United States states, cities, um, federal facilities, with it, we've already run up a trillion dollars in deferred infrastructure maintenance that we haven't taken care of. So is is everything just going to fall apart, or, or what's going to happen now? Uh, maybe Shirley, you want to you were you were very passionate about that earlier. Maybe you want to jump on that question. I just want to start. I mean, Atlanta is a relatively small city, less than 500,000 population, but we own and operate the Atlanta airport. And with the collapse of the airline industry, historically, the city, city of Atlanta has backed the bonds for the airport, even though the primary revenue comes, as you said, from landing fees and, and various other fees at the airport. None of that money comes into the city's general fund, however. So the real challenge will be is to whether there is a call on the city to cover airport, airport bond costs. I suspect that that won't be the case in the short run. And I mean short run, 18, 20, you know, 24 months or so. But that is something that has to be reviewed. Um, our water and sewer system is the largest in the state. And that, too, is the user funds, user fees. And the state constitution prohibits the city from giving away water. And it didn't make any allowances for a pandemic or situation like we're in now. And I mentioned to you, Bill, that I, I know that there are bonds there because I was responsible for a lot of the, the bonds and revenue bonds associated with uh, water and sewer infrastructure improvements, which are mandated by the Clean Water Act. So neither of those funds is safe in this environment. Uh, and it really is just a question of how long uh, the reserves can handle the payment has been, has been mentioned earlier. Yeah, Bill, this is Mike. You know, what uh, uh, what we have observed in the past is that when when the economy goes south and uh, revenues decline, one of the first places that uh, local governments uh, adjust very rapidly is on the is in the capital budget. In other words, the uh, the cash transfer from current revenue of the year that may support some a, a construction project. Uh, uh, typically gets pulled back into the operating budget and, and comes out of the capital budget. The second thing that we noticed, and you, you identified the trillion-dollar uh, maintenance backlog, it, is that uh, the shorter-sighted the shorter uh, cities will, will look to deferring the maintenance as a way of protecting uh, other services uh, in the short term. The problem with that strategy is that often that becomes a more of a permanent strategy than just a, a six-month or 12-month strategy of, of reducing maintenance. So your, the capital infrastructure of local governments and states tend to be hurt, hit first and hurt hardest over the longer term. Uh, so, so I see that what cities will be doing now besides drawing down reserves to pay for uh, bonds that no longer have a revenue source for them or that you think of one uh, is also that, that you'll see less uh, spending on uh, current revenue spending on uh, on infrastructure and probably even uh, declines in uh, maintenance and repair activities. That's from a historical perspective. 
it may be maybe going forward we are a little more enlightened and will not do that but i don't know whether there are other uh places to uh, uh in the budget where where cities and states uh, have that that leeway to to adjust in other areas other than reducing capital outlays and maintenance and repair uh, I, I might add this is at the state level not not to single out new jersey transit the rail and bus agency uh, that that's one of the hugest uh, mass transit systems in the country, uh, but we've seen the, the state using uh, using capital funds for operating purposes for for many years. It's declined a bit, but it's uh, even in a boom. There's a bunch of infrastructure spending that really has been drained off for uh, for for operating purposes. So it's something we we need to watch. Uh, we were talking earlier about the Federal Reserve's municipal lending facility or mlf the fed uh, on monday night announced expanded new terms and expanded terms to find the cities and counties that are eligible uh, by multi-state agencies uh, they've really they've really uh, spelled out a lot of the terms uh, allowing for fallen angels those are uh, those are borrowers that are that may may be downgraded during the period the, the window is open till the end of the year I'll let Susan field some of these uh, some of these questions. We really want to know how how cities are going to tap tap this facility or or go to their states to get a portion of the, the state borrowing. Well, as we as you just said, and good to be back. Thank you, Bill. Uh, the um, now we have access for many many more cities uh, than we did previously, which is a, a great move. So uh, many cities will not need to go through their states to access uh, this funding. The details of how to access the funding, I, I will leave uh, to others on the call who probably have better direct experience with this, including perhaps uh, Mayor Shirley. Um, but I, I do want to underline that this is the right response to this moment but we're going to need to think about a second response to the second leg downturn that I was referencing, which is a decrease in demand, a Keynesian decrease in demand coming from the decrease in uh, spending on state and local and related industries. And what is really important here to understand is the United States has a specific vulnerability that other nations do not have, which is that much of our government spending is state and local, and yet state and locals cannot be counter-cyclical in the way that the uh, federal government can. And this is a moment where interest rates have appropriately been lowered, which is exactly what needs to happen, uh, but taking advantage of that to fill the gap of infrastructure spending at these historic low interest rates and at the same time to get demand back uh, as we see demand plummeting uh, is going to be a critical next step. That's a fiscal policy and it's going to need a continuation of the innovative policies that the Fed and the Congress have begun to put into place. Well, Dick, can you see New York City going to the, the Fed's window? It's eligible, certainly, but this is this is these are only three-year credits. They come at a they come at a bit of a premium to the market, and they are three-year credits. So, so what happens? What happens if? if yeah, of course, New York will take advantage of it, yeah. because what politician wouldn't borrow money rather than cut education or healthcare or police or fire? But as I said earlier, the three years are up. Uh, and the debt is due, the city's going to need a hell of a lot more revenue than it had even last year in order to pay off all of this debt. You don't borrow for operating purposes. And I and many of the people on this call have been passionate advocates for the proposition that cities and states have to budget in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, not on a cash basis. And um, you can't expect uh, a mayor or a governor, and I wouldn't urge them to, not to take advantage of the availability of cash to deal with tomorrow's problem. But if I know anybody who's planning to run three years from now, I better make sure they understand what they're going to be facing. Well, Mike and and Mary and Shirley, what you know, 
what what are you hearing from from various uh, city halls about what what kind of plans states uh, or cities may may have to to tap some of this? The Fed has five hundred currently has five hundred billion dollars in authority to to buy municipal debt, so it's a it's a fair chunk of state and local deficits. I'm not sure that there is a single answer to your question. I, I think what uh, we're hearing in the in city halls at any rate, what we're hearing is all over from one end of the continuum to the other. But what is happening in some, uh, at least what we've seen in some of the municipalities that uh, we've identified in this uh, quick report about uh, where the, the decline in revenue is going to happen more more rapidly, is that uh, there are there are layoffs. Akron announced that it was it laid off one third of its workforce temporarily, but understanding that that they had to make a quick decision right away. I don't think that uh, is going to be the uniform response across the country. It it has the flavor of what I think Susan was identifying earlier about all universities are uh, and and uh, school systems are trying to work through what the fall is going to look like. And there isn't one, there isn't one single answer. Uh, they are uh, weighing the, the pros and cons of a variety of, uh, of concerns that they have. And, and part of it has to do with, um, with the, uh, the revenue systems that are in place and how responsive they are to changes in the underlying economy. The second is, is whether the, how quickly the economy uh, rebounds. And third is what kind of support will there be from the federal, certainly not going to come from the states, but from the federal government. And the, the, the push for uh, state and local support can't be more critical than it is right now because the, the future looks grim, to say the least. Well, I would just add to that. I mean, I agree with Mike that there'll be different answers depending on size of the city, the diversity of the revenue stream. And I, I wouldn't even begin to speculate what I might do if I were in city government right now, because that's dangerous, too. But I will say that what we're seeing in, in this area is we haven't seen yet a deferral in capital spending, although local government spends the primary capital is in the airport and water and sewer in Atlanta. But we are seeing um, a deferral of other areas of interest, like the city of Atlanta was going to issue bonds for affordable housing incentives of uh, 100 or $200 million and had identified the revenue stream uh, six, seven, eight months ago. Uh, but recently we've seen that put completely on hold. So other, so the, the, there's a clear need for incentives for housing, for workforce housing, affordable housing, housing for the homeless, et cetera. And that's being set aside because they can't take that, take that risk in the midst of this uh, economic downturn. And Bill, this is Mary. I think I would um, I would echo the points that that both Mike and Shirley have just made, and to the point that city leaders do have to obviously respond very quickly to the crisis at hand. We are seeing local officials, as their state counterparts are also doing the same, going to tools like dipping into rainy day funds and making use of reserves, but also talking quickly about the need to cut spending on services potentially lay off and furlough workers uh, as well, just to make sure that the budget will balance on time. So we seem to be saying that in, in, in some cases, taking on more debt may be a last resort, even with the Fed backstopping, backstopping the market. Although we've, we've seen plans by some municipalities and states to borrow already, the, the enacted New York budget, New York state budget has, I believe, $11 billion in uh, in new debt, uh, short-term debt uh, that that may be rolled over. So we are talking about we we are talking about assuming debt, and it, it seems it's inevitable because you you can't lay off the entire police force or or fire department necessarily. I have one one question that that's come from people in the uh, in the accounting and audit world and the, the privatization world. Uh, it's kind of a wild card question. We talk a lot about, about public-private partnerships of various sorts. There are a lot of municipal assets that, that are not necessarily up for sale, but uh, are uh, may have value, air rights, broadband, broadband access rights. 
many, many in, intangible things. Has, has anybody on, on the panel looked at ways that, that cities may be able to raise revenue, even uh, even as we come out of crisis, uh, without necessarily selling the selling the parking meters or, or selling the selling the roads? Oh, while waiting for others, I can just uh, this is small, but certainly um, from the real estate perspective, the hot sector that's making land available, leasing or for sale for towers, for increased connectivity, which you know I personally at this moment appreciate. But <laughs> the levity of that is obviously serious, and there there is a need, particularly in cities for connectivity for schools, et cetera. So uh, perhaps there's some win-win potential there. City of Atlanta outsourced its water system maybe 20 years ago, and it was a com and it ended up being a complete failure. But cities do try that, and the city of Atlanta did try it. It was neither the water company or the city's fault. They just, in my opinion, didn't take enough time to study the issues before they did it. But that's the kind of thing that cities have thought about doing to take a uh, to to move some of the risk um, to the private sector, and not to do it in haste. I, I might add, uh, we're coming up on the top on, at the top of the hour. So I want to thank everybody for for joining us. Um, my my co-host Susan Walker of, of Penn IUR. I'm Bill Glasgow. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.